Well, this morning we continue uh, a series called Genes, Dreams, Prophets, and Kings, and each one of those elements corresponds to an element within Advent uh, that we've been looking at. Uh, we're, we've been spending our time looking at uh, Matthew chapter 1 and 2 and seeing those elements within that, and this week uh, we're going to look at uh, what, what Matthew uh, pulls out of the Old Testament, the, the, the prophecies um, about this, this Jesus. And, uh, and how they point to who he is and what he would be and what he would do and ultimately how that uh, establishes peace for us. The thing about uh, Christmas is uh, we recognize that for all the joy and all of the, the, the hope and all the positive things that we experience during the season, um, Christmas also reminds us of that which is broken. Christmas, in a way, holds up a mirror and, and forces us to look at the fact that there's something deeply wrong with the world in which we live and deeply wrong with us. It, it shows us the fact that there should be peace on earth, but there's not. Every single one of us knows there should be peace on earth, but there's not. Why isn't that? Uh, the song that we just sang, it was, uh, it was written by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow uh, on Christmas Day, 1863. Longfellow had just lost his wife in a, in a tragic accident, and his son uh, was fighting uh, in the Union Army in the Civil War. And Wadsworth looked around, or Longfellow looked around at the world, and, and he saw its brokenness, and, he, and he, he, he laments, and you hear these words, in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. He looks around at the world, and he, and he sees that Christmas, it, it holds up this contrast that says there should be this reality, but you and I both know that that reality doesn't exist. And it's not the only song that does that. There's another Christmas song that also, also comes out of, out of war. 14 years before this one, a guy named Edmund Sears, coming out of the, the Mexican-American War, wrote, uh, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear, a song about angels singing um, over the shepherds, proclaiming peace the night Jesus was born. And, and Sears writes this, Yet with woes of sin and strife, the world has suffered long. Beneath the angel's strain have rolled 2,000 years of wrong, and man at war with man hears not the love song which they bring. Hush the noise, ye men of strife, and hear the angels sing. This, this lament, this reality, the world's not the way it's supposed to be, and that's not just the Christian perspective. Everybody knows this. And, and you, you take another popular Christmas song, John Lennon, right? Happy Christmas, war is over. What, is it, what does it talk about? The, the war is so long. There's this theme in there, this recognition of human conflict that should not be. It's not just Christians who recognize this. Everybody recognizes this. There's something wrong. There's a problem between us. But ultimately, it's a problem between us and God. How do we have peace? Why does war exist? You know, you could look back at, at, uh, at, at human history, and you could argue, you know, uh, that, that, that war really comes from fighting over limited resources. 
And many, many years ago, uh, family groups or tribal groups in an effort to, to control or, or have access to much needed uh, things would, would go to war with one another in order to survive. And yet, as humanity went along and as technology advances, natural or resources become more abundant and so it becomes less about need and more about want and the lust for more and the lust for power causes war to take a, a, a people that, that go from you know, a tribe of survivors to a nation of conquerors. And so you look at the Babylonian conquests, or you look at Alexander the Great, or you look at Roman imperialism, and it's all about making a name for us, us versus a them. And you hear the words of King Leonidas, Leonidas right? This is Sparta. This, this, this ideology, this fighting for us as opposed to them. And throughout all of this, the, the, the one fact that remains clear is that the, that the life of a human being has little of no value. That, that the life of the individual is not worth the, the ground that it dies on. It's not worth the cause that it fights for. That, that, that the individual human being has, has no value. And yet something changed about 2,000 years ago when an individual stepped on the stage and he began to proclaim a different message. He began to say things like, love your enemy. He began to say things like, if, if you're struck on the cheek, turn the other one also. He begins to say things like, if you're gonna live by the sword, then you'll die by the sword. And he, and he begins to teach that the individual human life has an inherent worth given to it by someone greater. That life matters, that life is important. And it's, it's actually Jesus and his disciples who would go on to teach Things like, it doesn't matter what your race is, and it doesn't matter what your social class is, and it doesn't matter what your gender is. You have value to your creator. You have value. And if you have value to your community, then you have value to God, then that changes how you see yourself, and it changes the world. See, this belief changes the world, and, and it was Christians who, who, who grabbed up orphans who were left on the streets of Rome, Kids who had no value in that society turned out in the cold. It was Christians who took them in and adopted them and loved them and raised them. It was Christians who stood up for the rights of slaves. The, the, the practice of, of burning or, 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 or branding a slave's face, it ceased when Christians took action. The practice of, of people being forced to, to battle one another to the death in the Colosseum. Christians changed that. Because of the teachings of Jesus showed us that we have this value, this worth that comes from a creator. And this changes everything. And the church is born. And the church spreads. And, and Christendom is inaugurated. And this begins to change the world. However, because this becomes the popular religion of the world, it's adopted and it's twisted. People who would call themselves Christian who had no relationship with Christ who did not know him, who did not imitate him, who did not follow him, but called themselves Christians, twisted what God said, used people's illiteracy and ignorance in order to go about doing what they'd always done, to kill and to conquer and destroy. And they used the name of Jesus, and, and they used this, this lie of going and taking the gospel to the heathens when what they really brought was the sword. So from the Crusades to the Conquistadors, there was this twisting, this hypocrisy, this, this lying about who God is. And yet at the same time, there were those who held fast 
There were those who, who, who held on to the orthodoxy, those who, who, who taught what Jesus taught, those who, who would take scripture and translate it and make copies of it and get it out to other people so that they could have it and so they could know the truth. And see, this changed the world, and one of the ways it changed the world is in warfare. War still existed, but war changed. And you see this most uh, uh, profoundly in the American Revolution. The American Revolution, it wasn't just about dirt, and it wasn't just about creating a new nation. The American Revolution was about liberty. It was about freedom. But all men are created equal. This was a teaching that came from Jesus. And yet again, people twisted it. Yet again, people who call themselves Christians use their freedom in order to enslave other people and take away their freedom. And yet, at the same time they were doing this, other people who were filled with conviction, even before the Revolutionary War ends, begin an abolitionist movement. People who said, it's wrong for us to say that all men are created equal and withhold that equality from some. An abolitionist movement began, and who was it led by? Christians. Christians. Now, the end result, of course, was another war and, and the bloodiest conflict that humanity had ever seen up until that point. And it was out of that that we hear this song. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Now, we don't live in a, in a Christian age anymore. We live in a post-Christian culture. We live in a secular culture. But you, you ask our culture, you put the question to it, is war wrong? And we say yes. It, it's horrific. It should not be. Why is it wrong? Because it demeans human life. It treats human life like it's, like it's worthless. Human life has value. Where does the value come from? I don't know. And a secular age cannot agree on where the value of human life comes from, but it is resolute in saying this, it doesn't come from God. It doesn't come from God. You see, you, you ask people in our culture, how do we achieve peace on earth? And many of them will tell you, well, let's do away with God. If we just stop believing in the supernatural, if we just, just produce good science and technology and medicine, and it's there that we're gonna find our freedom, it's there where we're gonna find our hope, it's there that's gonna, that, that peace on earth will be established, but we gotta get rid of God. And if people will just stop believing in, the, in, in some sort of supernatural authority figure over them that tells and telling everybody that they have to obey this God, if people will just stop doing that, then, then wars will end. Get rid of religion, then you get rid of war and we'll have peace. And that's the solution. So you get rid of authority and have freedom. But all of a sudden, freedom twists. It's, it's changed and it's redefined. And freedom is no longer about uh, liberty from tyranny. Freedom becomes about me getting to do exactly what I want to do. I get to go do what I want to do. You go get to do what you want to do. As long as you don't hurt me and I don't hurt you, then everything is fine. And that's, that's how peace will come, right? Everybody gets to do what they want to do so long as they don't hurt other people. And then peace will come. But that doesn't work. It doesn't work. And, and that's playing out in our culture right now. It's playing out in our city right now. As, as what's making the news is, is a man who identifies himself as a woman and goes into the women's locker room and disrobes in front of the young girls his freedom to do that tramples on their freedom to feel safe and secure in a place that should be. 
See, it doesn't work. We don't get to do whatever we want to do. Because what I want to do will conflict with what you want to do. And there'll be strife. Like, the, the only solution is that both of us bend the knee to the same authority. All of human conflict, all the conflicts between us as human beings stems from one reality. We are not at peace with God. We're at war with God. And we've been at war since almost the very beginning. That humanity has rebelled against God's authority and rejected God's authority and disobeyed God's authority and we've disbelieved that he had the right to be in authority. We've rejected God and we've been at strife, at enmity, at war with God ever since. So if we're at war with God, how can we possibly ever have peace with one another? Well, turn with me to Matthew chapter one and two. This morning we're gonna look at five prophecies that uh, Matthew brings out of the past and into his present. Five prophecies which, which point to who this Jesus is and would be for us and how that would lead us to peace ultimately with God. We're gonna start Matthew 1, chapter 18 through 24. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save the people, his people, from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife. So uh, Matthew is, uh, he's quoting here from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7, um, particularly verse 14. And to look at that context, Isaiah lived 700 years before Jesus and all the prophets during this, this particular age were living in a time where the, the, the nation or the people of Israel were in steep decline because of their rejection and rebelliousness against God. And ultimately, that would lead towards all of them being conquered, uh, captured, and carried away into captivity. But it would happen in stages because at this point in their history, the nation was divided into two parts. There was Israel in the northern kingdom, also called Ephraim, and there was Judah in the south, a divided kingdom. And in Isaiah's time, Israel had aligned with a, a country named Assyria in order to fight against Judah. They were threatened to conquer and invade Judah. And the king at the time, Ahaz, is, is scared. And so God sends Isaiah to him to comfort him. And God makes a promise to Ahaz. He says, they're not going to conquer you. They're not going to invade you. In fact, within a couple of years, both kings will be dead. Within 65 years, Israel will be no more, and Assyria won't be a problem. And he's pointing to what's going to happen. And, and then Isaiah tells Ahaz, he says, demand a sign from God. What, what do you want God to do for you to prove that this promise is, is true? And Ahaz says, no, nah, I'm good. There's this false piety. He says, I, I don't want to put God to the test. When, in fact, he doesn't actually believe God. Ahaz has actually already made an alliance with the king of Syria. 
He's looking to Syria for protection rather than God. And so God's response is, well, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And the sign is going to be a virgin will bear a son, and his name is going to be Emmanuel. And it happens. Not in Nahaz's lifetime. It happens 700 years later. We see it happening on the pages of the New Testament. And we hear Isaiah's words. The promise is being fulfilled. But what does that show us about who Jesus is? Uh, Matthew, in this parenthetical statement, he says, it means God with us. Not God beside us, not God behind us, not God in front of us, God with us. God takes on flesh and moves into the neighborhood. In other words, God crosses enemy lines and he comes and dwells among his very enemy. God with us. How is it that we're going to have peace with one another? We have to have peace with God and that will come not with us trying to get to him. We can't. He comes to us. God with us. Well, the second uh, prophecy, Matthew 2 one through six. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So the wise men, uh, they see a sign in the sky. They believe it is a star foretelling of a, of a child born a king, born to, to do something uh, special and magnificent, so they travel a long way to go and worship this king. They go to Jerusalem expecting him to be found in a palace. And they learned that, that he's to be born in Bethlehem, a few miles south of Jerusalem. They travel there, they worship him, they give him elaborate gifts. Now, Matthew is bringing to mind uh, something from uh, the prophet Micah. And in Micah chapter 5, 2 through 5, we, we read this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah... Um, uh, there, there's lists in the Old Testament one is in Joshua 15 one is in Nehemiah 11 that lists the important towns within Israel or within Judah Bethlehem's not listed it's not important it's nowhere it's, it's no place worth mentioning and yet that's where Jesus comes from from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old from ancient days and, and, and in Hebrew what that means is actually before time begins in other words this individual's eternal from ancient days, therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. He shall be their peace. Now, the prophets didn't see two advents. Here's what I mean by that. The prophets, from the perspective that they were given by God about what was going to happen in the future, they just saw one. They saw one coming of this Messiah. They didn't see two. And we understand that there are two advents, one in which the Messiah comes as a baby, a lamb who goes to the slaughter. But there will be another advent which he comes as a lion a king enthroned. 
Now, the first time he comes, he deals with the punishment of sin. The next time he comes, he'll deal with the presence of sin. But the prophets didn't see that. And so in in their their, their prophecies, those things are conflated together. But here's what he's talking about. He's talking about a Messiah who's going to come, who's going to shepherd people and lead people. And what does it say? He himself will be their peace. He will be their peace. So how do you and I have, have peace? Well, the, the thing that's, that's highlighted here, the reason why Matthew includes this and points to it is, is, is to look at Jesus' humility. He's from Bethlehem. He's from nowhere. He's completely humble. You see, this Messiah, he doesn't arrive with all this power and all this magnificent, uh, glorious, awesome might, he, he arrives small and quiet and meek and humble. Humble. So how is it that we get to have peace with one another? Well, we have to have peace with God, but that peace comes from God coming to us in humility. The third prophecy points us to peace as well. Matthew 2, 13 through 15. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. Now, uh, Matthew is, is pointing us to Hosea. These are the words from the prophet Hosea. Hosea lived at the same time as, as Micah and Isaiah, roughly, about 700 years before Jesus. But where Isaiah and Micah were sent to the southern kingdom, Hosea was sent to the northern kingdom. He was sent to Israel. And, and his message was one of unfaithfulness. And actually, he was told by God to, to marry a woman who would cheat on him, who would be unfaithful toward him, and who would actually have children by other men. And it was to be like this, this living parable about God's relationship with his people, that he'd been a faithful husband to them, but they had been an unfaithful wife to him. But, but in Hosea chapter 11, the metaphor changes from husband and wife to father and son. And we read this, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The Israelites were once slaves in Egypt. God redeemed them and saved them. But the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals, false gods, and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up, in their, up their, by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. Because they have refused to return to me, the sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up. Now we look at Christmas time and we see this image. God holds up before us and says, this is the way things should be. There should be peace on earth, and we, we know that there's not, and so we will lament about that. But, but you see here the lament of God. <clears throat> you hear the, the, the heartbreak of God. I've done everything for them, and they've turned away from me. They've bent themselves away from me. 
bent themselves away. And so here's what, what, what Matthew is doing here. He's putting Jesus in the place of Israel. Out of Egypt I called my son. Joseph takes Mary and Jesus to Egypt to hide until Herod dies, but then God will call Jesus out of Egypt. Right? Out of Egypt I called my son. And, and what he's saying here is this, Jesus is going to be a better son. He is the true son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity, but he's gonna be a better son than Israel was. Jesus is going to be faithful where Israel was faithless. Jesus is going to live a life that, that we can't live every moment of every day perfectly faithful to the Father, never disobedient, never disbelieving, never rebellious, never, never walking away from the Father, completely faithful. If we're going to have faith with one another or peace with one another, we have to have peace with God first, but that can only come through embracing this person who is God with us, humble and faithful. Next prophecy, Matthew 2, 16 through 18. When Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. Once again, this image is being upheld. This is not what should be. This should not be allowed to happen. But this is what humanity does. Well, here, Matthew is, is bringing out of the past the words of Jeremiah from Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah lived about 100 years after Isaiah, about 600 years before Jesus. When Jeremiah lived, I, uh, the, the, the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, had already been taken into captivity and was no more. And Jeremiah, uh, he does two things. One, uh, he, he laments what has happened to the, to the northern kingdom of Israel as it was taken away in captivity. But two, he's warning the southern kingdom of Judah of what, what is going to happen to them. And here are the words of Jeremiah 31, 15 through 17. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. He's saying a couple of things here. One, it's lamenting over what's happened. Uh, Rachel is the matriarch who whose son was Joseph. From Joseph, uh, two tribes of Israel, Manasseh and Ephraim, come. Rachel is the, the, the matriarch of Israel. And so when he says that Rachel is weeping over her children, there's this, this picture of, of, of the children of Israel going away into captivity. At the same time, Ramah was, was the place that would become the staging point for Nebuchadnezzar to conquer Judah, the southern kingdom. And so there's both lamentation for Israel, but there's warning for Judah. And then all of this, Jeremiah is pointing towards hope. There'll be a return. They will come back. The story's not over. Despite the calamity and, and the horrific things that human beings do to each other, there's a future hope. So 
Matthew is pointing us to that. But see, the reality is, is Jesus didn't avoid being killed when he escaped from King Herod. Herod came in, and yes, he, he destroyed all the innocent children of, of Bethlehem, and Jesus escaped to Egypt, but he, he still was killed. You see that Jesus, he was born for this purpose. He was born to come into our world, to be what we couldn't be, to be faithful where we were faithless, but he comes vulnerable. He comes mortal. He comes not invincible. He comes in order to die. You see, that's how peace is made. Because of our sin, because of what stands between us and God, the, the reason why there's not peace between us and God is sin, and sin has to be dealt with, and that needs to be dealt with on two levels. One, we have to become righteous, and two, God's anger needs to be taken care of. It can't be swept under the rug. It can't be forgotten. And so here comes Jesus, God in the flesh, God with us, humble and faithful and vulnerable and mortal as he stands between us and God and he serves as a shield uh, for, for us against the wrath of God. And it is, at his death, we get his righteousness. We get to be righteous because of what he does, but then he takes on our sin. You see, that's, that's what he came for. Jesus didn't avoid death. He prolonged it, but but that's what he came to do. And that's the way peace was made. How do we have peace on earth? We have to have peace with God. But it has to come through Jesus. And he does it. Because he wasn't invincible. Now there's one more prophecy here in Matthew. Chapter 2, 19 through 23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, um, if you look in the Old Testament and you look for a place where it says Jesus would be called a Nazarene, you won't find it. No prophet, no individual prophet says that Jesus would be a Nazarene. Um, what we do find is that over and over again, the prophets say that he would be a branch. He would be the root of Jesse. He would be the descendant of David. God had promised David that a descendant of his would reign on the throne, his throne, forever that the Messiah they were waiting for would be a descendant, a branch of David. And now, the word branch in Hebrew is the word netzer, and it, and it contains all of the same consonant sounds as Nazareth. Matthew's sort of using this, this, this play on phonics, so to speak, to point to the fact that Jesus would be a descendant of David. But, but, but Nazareth is, is, is crucial to understand Jesus because Nazareth was not a great place to be from. It was not a great place to be from. In, in, in fact, um, one of uh, Jesus' first disciples, his name was Nathaniel, he finds out Jesus is from Nazareth. He says, what good can come from Nazareth? It was believed, or historians believe, that there was a, a Roman citadel there, that, 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 that Nazareth uh, housed part of the Roman army for that region. And so people who lived in Nazareth probably made a living serving Roman soldiers who were seen as the enemy. Nazareth was not a good place to be from. Imagine 
somebody who's from Columbus, Ohio, and they attend the Ohio State University, and they find out somebody is from Lincoln, Nebraska. I'm from Nebraska. Somebody said, oh. <laughs> but but, but it's, it carries this idea, like, you, you find out, you know, you, you, you travel, right, the, the world. You, you go someplace in Europe, and they say, oh, you're an American. Where are you from? You from New York? You from Los Angeles? You, you, you from, you know, Chicago? Oh, you're from Xenia, Ohio? But, but see, more than that, Nazareth just carried this very negative con- connotation. It was, it, it was a place that was despised. And see, that lines up with what Jesus was said to be. One of the prophets said this about the Messiah, that he would be a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Isaiah 53 says that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. You see, if we're going to have peace with one another, we have to have peace with God. But, but peace with God comes by embracing this individual. And who does he show himself to be? He's God with us, but he's humble and he's faithful and, and, and he's vulnerable. And he's despised and he's hated and is rejected. This is the gospel. You think about it. You, you were to ask the world, what's, what's a good narrative for how peace on earth is, dis, is established? What would be a great story? Well, it would include, you know, a superhero, someone with super strength and superpowers and was super cool and really, really nice to everybody. Like, it would be this, this superhero, and, and it would save the world and unite the world because, like, an alien invasion would happen, and he would stop it, and everybody would be like, why are we fighting for? We need to fight against aliens instead, and so you got a common enemy, and so now we'd have peace on, like, it would be a superhero story. But it wouldn't just be a superhero story, it'd be a, I'm a superhero in the story. I'm the superhero in the story. I, like, I, if, if I was allowed to be me, and you were allowed to be you, and, and we didn't have an authority, like, then, then we would have peace on earth. But that's not the story God writes. God writes a, a story where, where the superhero comes to us, because we couldn't get to him. Like there isn't like some far off journey or pilgrimage that we take and go find this hidden elusive God. He comes to us. And in this story, he doesn't come like in all of this power and all this glory and all of this magnificence. He comes humble and small. And in this story, he, he doesn't come demanding fealty to him. Instead, he has fealty to another. He's faithful. And in this story, he's not invincible. He's mortal and he gets killed. And in this story, he's despised and he's hated and he's rejected. And if you embrace him, then you get to have peace with God. That's the gospel. And it's a story that none of us would write. But that's the truth. That's the truth. And because of Jesus, we get to have peace with God. Hear from Paul, Ephesians 2, 13 through 16. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. How does peace on earth come? 
that comes through peace with God bought with the blood of Christ. Spot with the blood of Christ. Now, if you're here this morning, you would say you're a Christian. You would say this Jesus is someone that you believe in, that you, you're knowing or growing in your knowledge of him, that you are doing your best to imitate him with your life and follow him, that you are a Christian. And you would say that you have peace with God and that, that peace was bought by the precious blood of Christ who is God come to you humble, faithful, vulnerable, and despised and rejected. You would say, I'm a Christian based on that. If that's the case, how come you have conflict with other people? How come you're at war? John Henderson writes, when we as a redeemed people fight with one another, we are displaying just how poorly we understand the gospel. How can I be in conflict with you if God came to me, humble and faithful, vulnerable and rejected and despised? If God did all that for me, I didn't do any of it. I couldn't get to him. I was too prideful. I've proved to be too faithless. I've proved to want to save my skin time and time again. I don't want to be despised or rejected. I want to be loved and glorified. That's who I am. I couldn't get to God, so God came to me, and he did all of that for me. And so based on that, I get to have peace with God. How in the world do I justify being in conflict with another human being? So if you're here and you're, you're a Christian, and you look back at, at Christian history, and you will recognize those conquistadors and those people who would use the name of Christ, who would go and conquer and kill for selfish gain. They would use Christian as religion, but they would not use Christ as savior. And they were hypocrites and they were liars. You look at our history and you see people who said all men are created equal, something that comes from Jesus and yet twisted it to give you or give them the right to subdue and subjugate and enslave people. People who call themselves Christians. And yet here we are. How can we be in conflict with another human being after understanding the grace that we've been given by Jesus Christ? It should convict us. I think that when we are in conflict, if we will stop and remember the truth of the gospel and remember the grace that has been given to us, it will change and it will resolve and it will bring conflict or peace, or peace to that relationship. It's the gospel that we need to return to. Now, the beautiful thing about this is that, that we live in a time period where Jesus has come and peace has begun. Because of Jesus and the incarnation, because of the cross, the punishment of sin has been taken care of. And so if you're here this morning and you are in conflict, hey, remember the grace you have. Remember, you're, the punishment for your sin, it's being taken care of. It's already been taken care of. And we look forward at the same time to the return of Jesus. And see, that's the hope. And I want to remind us, I want to go back to those songs that we looked at in the beginning. You know, Longfellow, in despite of his circumstances, there's, there's, there's this lamentation, there's, there's this grief, and, and you, you hear Longfellow say, in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. 
right? Hate is strong, it mocks the song. You, you hear the, the sadness in that. And yet, Longfellow heard the bells on Christmas Day. And the bells proclaimed a louder message than his circumstances. And the song resolves with these words, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. See, he looked forward. See, this Advent season, for us, it's looking back and thanking God that we have peace. Because of the blood of Jesus, we have peace through what he's done, through, through the fact that he became flesh, we have peace. And yet we, we, we realize that this world is still fallen and is still broken, and so we long for the day when peace will become the complete reality. And the presence of sin is removed. But we have this confidence that will happen. From the words of it came upon a midnight clear, we, we heard seers lament, yet with woes of sin and strife, the world has suffered long beneath the angel's strain, have rolled 2,000 years of wrong. And man at war with man hears not the love song. And yet he too resolves the song by pointing to what Jesus will one day do. For lo, the days are hastening on by prophet bards foretold. When with ever circling years comes round the age of gold, when peace shall over all the earth its ancient splendors fling, and the whole world give back the song which now the angels sing. Christian, peace. It will be completely realized. You have peace with God because of Jesus. Rejoice in that. But may that peace not stop in you. May it flow through you into all of your relationships. And may you look forward with hope to knowing that one day you will look around and there won't be any war. There will be not, not be any conflict, no more suffering as a result of human striving against human. But if you're here this morning and you say, I, I'm not a Christian. I've been brought here uh, by somebody else and you know, out of respect for them, I've, I've come or I come and I have, I have questions about all these things that, that you believe. First of all, I'm glad you're here. Welcome. Know that you're welcome here. But I want you to ask yourself the question. Did you look around at the war and the strife in, in our world and do you see a problem with it? Does it bother you? Do you see this is not the way it should be? Do we agree on that? And, and, and is it wrong because human life has value? Do you agree with us that, 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 that a human has dignity and value? But where does that come from? Where does that worth come from? Does it come from self or does it come from somebody higher? See, if it comes from somebody higher, that changes things. What is the path to peace? What is the solution to peace? Do you think it's in here? You see, there are other songs that we sing around the holidays together that talk about peace and that long for peace. John Lennon's Happy Christmas, War is Over. It deals with the, the reality of war. But what does Lennon point to as hope for peace on earth? He points here. You look at human history do you think hope is to be found here? Does human history show you that we're getting better? Does it show you that we're, we're becoming more loving and more kind? Does it show you that, 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 that we long for striving to cease? Is the hope here? 
And I think if you'll take a, a really hard look, you'll know it's not. It has to come from somewhere else. It has to come from above. It has to somebody, come from somebody who's better than we are. So if you're here this morning, wrestle with these things and ask, is there a God who loves me enough to make peace with me even at the cost of his own son? And there is. So this morning, as we conclude, we light the candle of peace together. And we are reminded that we live between two advents, one in which the punishment of sin is erased and we have peace with God, and one in which the presence of sin will be erased and we'll have peace in every aspect of our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this plan. Lord Jesus, thank you for submitting to it. Thank you for coming. Thank you for the way in which you came to be God with us, humble, faithful, vulnerable, willing to be rejected and despised. And you laid down your life so that you could give us your righteousness and so that you could take away our sin. Lord Jesus, because of you, we get to have peace with God. And I pray that that peace would not be something that stay, remains locked inside of us. That it's not a get out of jail free card. That it's not what we hold on to in order to get out of heaven. But that we would take that peace that lives in us and that we would apply it to all the relationships around us. That we would be seen as a people who have experienced the peace of God by grace and are willing to experience peace with other people by grace. That we extend that which has been so costly given to us by you. Lord Jesus, thank you. And by your spirit, I pray that you would enable us to live out of that. In Jesus' name, amen.